All right, well, it's uh, really a privilege to be with you. I'm so uh, thankful that we get to be the church that God has chosen us, that uh, we come together as people loved by God. We are uh, needy. I know that I am <laughs> so needy and ordinary, but thankful that we serve an extraordinary God and get to proclaim an extraordinary message. And so if you'll uh, take your Bibles, uh, we have the privilege now together of studying God's Word and um, we're looking together at Luke chapter 6. So if you'll uh, take your Bible and open to uh, Luke chapter 6, uh, maybe uh, you remember that we're taking a little time to talk about uh, leadership in the local church. Uh, we're calling this understanding Christian leadership or understanding leadership in the church. And of course, uh, there's a couple different ways that we could talk about leadership. So uh, one way that we could talk about leadership is just kind of to talk generally about character-related issues, so like the nature of leadership, maybe. Um, and that's important, obviously. Uh, for example, one big one that we're going to see coming up in Luke a lot, actually, is that Christian leaders are servants. Uh, they're slaves, which... I know is really familiar, but I'm still not sure that we always get it. I, I don't always get it because we're living in the land of kings, honestly. We come out of the womb thinking that we are king of the world, and we're constantly being told to think of ourselves as the king of the world. And so you look, for example, at how we respond when we have to stand in line or when we're at a red light or when service at the restaurant isn't what we would expect. We respond like Kingswood. And yet, of course, in, in the church, we know we're not supposed to act like that. We're, we're not kings. We're supposed to think of ourselves like servants. And yet, I'm afraid that sometimes our culture has so deeply influenced us that we're even servant kings. The way we go to serve, we serve like we think we're kings. If you look at our service, sometimes it's the way a king would serve, if a king had to serve, I guess. But Anyway, that's another sermon, the nature of leadership. We could talk about leadership by talking about things like character. But another way that we could talk about leadership is more specifically thinking together about the offices or uh, the particular roles that God has given in history for people to play in the church. Like this one here that we read about in Luke chapter 6 of Apostle. You can probably see in the heading... In your Bible, above verse 12 there, in bold print, it says the 12 apostles. That's a, a role or an office in the church. And in the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about other roles or offices, uh, like elders, and we're going to talk about uh, deacons. But we're going to begin here by talking about apostles. Uh, Luke writes, in these days, uh, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a, a traitor, which... I know it at first might sound almost just like a list of names. It is a list of names. But these verses introduce us to a concept that's really important for understanding a lot of what's going on 
in the New Testament, actually. And I'm talking, of course, about the term that we sort of find in the middle there, uh, where it says, Jesus chose from them 12 whom he named apostles, which, as we read our, our Bible, or I guess you could say, uh, who, as we read our Bible, were some really important people. In fact, someone's written next to Jesus, the most important person in the early church was the apostle. And they say that because in the New Testament, the church is described as being built on the foundation of the apostles. Jesus says in the future, they're going to have a role to play in God's plan for Israel. And when John describes the new heavens and the new earth, and more specifically, the holy city that comes down out of heaven from God, he says their names are on the foundations. So you look at God's plan for the history of the world, and these men are pretty significant. So significant that someone once said, if you don't understand the role of an apostle, you're going to have a hard time understanding the history of redemption, uh, the main story of what God is doing in the world. And actually, if you don't understand what the Bible teaches about apostles, you're going to be in danger of being led in some funny directions yourself. Uh, this has practical implications because there are people out there who use the word apostle to describe, them, describe themselves, but they aren't using it uh, very carefully or they're just using it incorrectly. I uh, remember in Africa, this was uh, something that came up actually on a pretty regular basis. I often met people who thought of themselves as apostles uh, or introduced themselves as apostles. Hello, I'm Apostle Nicodemus or anything like that. In fact, one of the uh, seminaries that we were connected to had students who would come thinking they were an apostle. That was like the first year, usually by the third year, they realized they weren't. But, but that's not just Africa, actually. Uh, if you Google uh, 12 apostles, one of the first things that comes up is this super huge American cult that has a totally unbiblical view of apostles. I was going to listen to a podcast yesterday on apostles. I thought, let me listen to someone I don't know just to hear what people are saying. And, you know, it was, some, it was from someone in that group saying things that were totally wrong. And then that's not just them either. Uh, one of the most popular newer religious movements in the States in recent years apparently is something called the New Apostolic Reformation, and they're claiming to restore the lost office of apostle to the church. And they think that we need apostles to take over leadership in the church so that God's plan can be fulfilled and Jesus return. And that's kind of a newer movement in the States, I guess, but it was pretty common in Africa where we were for so many years for sure. And the people I met who thought of themselves as apostles expected people to show them a lot of respect. And they would exercise authority. And they would claim to have revelation. And they would create a lot of confusion. And you can see why. Because if they really are apostles and tell you something, you need to do it. But if they're not, that's manipulating, which is another reason why we need to think about this role of apostle. As we uh, come to God's word, we need to come humbly. I was uh, telling my wife on the drive over here that sometimes when you have to think about something like roles or offices in the church, at first it might not seem like it has a lot of practical implications, but the reality is if you step back and think about just the church in general, like one of the 
the biggest churches in the world as, as totally uh, unbiblical outside of the Bible view of leadership. There's a man called the Pope that you can't find anywhere <laughs> in there. And that obviously has had a lot of ramifications on the way people live. And so as we come to the scripture, we want to understand how does God think about leadership. And as we look at this text where Jesus appoints apostles, sometimes people are confused. Do, do, do we have them? Do we not have them? People even use the word apostle in different ways. And so we need to think about what does it mean to be a an apostle. Jesus named apostles here, obviously, but what exactly was he doing when he called them apostles? And we're going to try to think about this from the ground up, really, and start with a pretty basic question. Uh, number one, what is an apostle? So three questions. And, and the first question is, what is an apostle? Because it's kind of a funny word, and by itself it doesn't tell us much, because it's what they call a transliteration of the Greek word, and a transliteration obviously is where you take a word from one language and you use it pretty much straight up in your own language. Uh, like the word baptism, that's a Greek word. And apostle is a Greek word. Uh, apostolos is a noun and apostello is the verb. And the verb literally meant to send. And the noun, obviously, then was one who was sent, which tells us something, of course. An apostle was someone who was sent out and yet it doesn't tell us much else, really, if you leave it there, because it's just such a general word, sent out, and it could describe a lot of people. And sometimes it did, actually, in the Bible. It could be used in a very general way, like John chapter 13, verse 16, as an example. And you can just listen, I guess. But Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, which is is like a general principle, almost like a proverb. And then he continues, nor is a messenger, or if you're going to be literal there, an apostle greater than the one who sent him. And so sometimes the word apostle just means messenger. And that's why you find people like Titus or Barnabas being called apostles, because they had been sent out by churches and were apostles in sort of a generic general sense, like a lowercase a apostle. They were someone who was sent on a mission. And yet, that's not always how this word was used. The word apostle was also used to describe the sending of someone in a more authoritative kind of manner. And, and maybe bold print in your mind, authoritative. This is like apostle with a capital A. So the emperor of Rome would send out apostles, and they had the authority to speak on behalf of the emperor himself. And if you disobeyed them, you disobeyed the emperor. And uh, the Jews in Jesus' day had a role like that as well. In fact, there was a term in Aramaic, and the New Testament was written in Greek, so Luke was written in Greek, but Jesus spoke Aramaic. And so the Greek is a translation, and the Greek word for apostle has an exact Aramaic equivalent, which describes this role perfectly, and that's the word shaliah which doesn't mean much to us, but would have meant something to everyone in Jesus' day because one of the most important groups in Israel was the Sanhedrin. 
And the Sanhedrin used Shaliah. So the Sanhedrin was a council of leaders, and they were located in Jerusalem. And they made decisions, and they issued rulings. And yet, obviously, the Jewish people were really spread out at this point. They had gone all over the world, even as far away as India. And so if the Sanhedrin there in Jerusalem wanted to get word out to the Jewish people around the world about a decision or to collect money to keep up the temple, they would point in, appoint individuals to serve as their shaliah. And the shaliah were not Sanhedrin members, but they were like Sanhedrin members wherever they went. They spoke for the Sanhedrin, and they were uh, meant to be obeyed like they were the Sanhedrin. They were never really acting on their own. They were always representing the ruling council. That was their role, and people knew it. They understood the concept. And so even in this collection of oral traditions uh, that they had called the Mishnah, they talked about the role of the Shaliah. And they said when it came to the Shaliah, here's a key quote, the one sent by the man is as the man himself which helps us understand a little what it meant to be an apostle. These men were being called to represent Jesus in a unique way. Jesus had been going around uh, preaching, and it seems like there was a group of people who were showing up everywhere he went, and Jesus has already chosen some of them to be his disciples, and so they've left their jobs, and they're following him full time, and now he's being rejected by the religious leadership of his day, at Jesus and, and things are getting hot because they're, they're making it clear that they are committed to a completely different agenda than God's. And so Jesus here in Luke chooses to set apart 12 of his disciples to serve as his shaliah or his apostles or his messengers or his authorized representatives and train them and gift them with miraculous powers and then send them out on short-term mission assignments and then finally authorize them to go out on their own and minister in his place, speaking for him. And so these are not just men being sent on a mission kind of generically, but instead these are men who are personally commissioned by Jesus himself to serve as his officially authorized representatives, like official delegates. And so when we look at these apostles, we're, we're looking at people who were chosen to play a unique role in God's salvation history. And one way Luke highlights how unique is by drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus spent all night in prayer before he made this decision. You see that in verse 12. In, these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent all night praying, which is like Luke's way of saying, wait, uh, you need to stop and look at this. Because you know, Jesus prays a lot, obviously, in the Gospel of Luke, but actually, if you look at the times Luke points out Jesus praying, it's at these really pivotal moments in salvation history, like Luke chapter 3 at uh, Jesus' baptism, before the Spirit descends and Jesus begins his ministry, he's praying. And, and in Luke chapter 5, right before he enters into conflict with the Pharisees and is rejected by the religious leadership, he's praying. And in Luke chapter 9, before uh, Peter makes this big confession about who Jesus is, he's praying. And then right before the transfiguration, Luke says it's all happening as Jesus is praying, and we could keep going, but I'm saying it seems like when there's going to be a particularly 
big moment in how God is working out salvation history in Luke. He highlights it happening as Jesus is praying. And so when God rips open the sky and says, this is my son, Jesus is praying. And when Peter steps up and recognizes who Jesus is, that he is actually the Messiah, Jesus is praying. Or when Elijah and Moses come down from heaven to meet with Jesus, he's praying. And here, when Jesus is choosing these men to serve as his representatives and speak for him, Luke says he spends the whole night in prayer, which means that we're about to see something very significant happen here. I mean, this is not Jesus just sending anyone out to do anything. Jesus is making a statement. These men are being set aside to do something unusual. And yet, of course, the question is what? Because while we, we know that he's choosing men to represent him, and they're like the Shaliah, I think maybe it's a little harder for us to catch the drama of the scene because we're so used to the word apostle or this idea apostle that we don't think of it really. But you know, it is unusual in that there aren't really apostles in the Old Testament, not these kind at least. And so you've got to ask, where did this come from? And why is Jesus doing this? Like, why is he choosing apostles like this? And to understand that, you almost have to pick up Luke as if you hadn't read the New Testament, but had spent most of your time in the Old Testament because there's a context to this. And if you hadn't read the New Testament and had spent most of your time in the Old, you would be picking up the Gospel of Luke with certain questions, probably different questions than we have actually. Like one of the big questions that you would have been asking is, what is God doing with Israel? And we don't ask that quite as much because uh, we're always thinking about the church, and that's good. But there wasn't a church in the Old Testament. There was Israel. And if you know the Old Testament, you know that they are important. They're key, actually, because God has revealed he has this great big plan for reversing the curse and making the whole universe like the Garden of Eden again, basically. And he says that he's going to do it through the nation of Israel. This is how the Old Testament works. Genesis 1 to 11 is the problem. There is a problem in this world that we can't fix. Genesis 12 is the solution. For God so loved the world that he chose Abraham. And Genesis makes it clear that it is Abraham's descendants, Israel, 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 who is the key to the solution. And yet, of course, the reality is that at this point, that didn't seem to be happening when Jesus is around. And so people would be wondering, how is it going to happen then? I mean, what is it going to take for God to keep all his promises to Israel? And, you know, the people in Jesus' day had ideas. They had ideas about the problem, and they had ideas about the solution. And as we've been studying the Gospel of Luke, we've been seeing that they were basically saying that the way it would happen was for Israel to keep God's law better. And yet that's not actually how the Old Testament said it was going to happen, which is why Jesus is often like, have you not read? Have you not read? Because the Old Testament does speak to this, actually. And Luke's helped us see where by quoting over and over again, what book? The book of Isaiah. 
And so Isaiah is a book about how God is going to transform Israel and save the universe. And one of the key sections in that book where he describes how he's going to do that is in this series of poems we call the servant songs. And this is a, a lot of information, I know. But I promise I'm going to try to get you to the apostles. I just want you to see where they come from. And to see that, you have to see that this moment where Jesus chooses the apostles is connected to what God's doing through Jesus. And to see what God's doing through Jesus, you have to understand what he says he's going to do in Isaiah, and specifically the servant songs, which takes a little work because the servant songs can be confusing. Anybody know where the servant songs are? They're in Isaiah 40 through 55, really. And, and, and the reason they can be confusing is because God, in those songs, says he has this servant that he's going to be using. That part is clear. And yet sometimes you read those songs, and this servant is the whole nation of Israel. And so some of those songs are clearly about the nation of Israel. And yet we know that Israel failed as God's servant. And so what's going to happen then? Because obviously God knew that, and he had a plan. And that is why in the servant songs, we find that what is going to happen is God is going to send an individual who is going to represent Israel. And this is uh, so important. It's probably good to look at it. Isaiah chapter 49, uh, verse 1. Isaiah is talking about the future, and he writes, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar, which is literally us. <laughs> the Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And so you see, uh, the, the, the servant is talking here, and he's called Israel, and he says that God has promised he's going to glorify himself through Israel, like he's going to get this done. But you wonder, is he talking about the whole nation? Listen to what he says after his servant says that it looks like his mission was a, a failure, and this is verse 5. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And it's like, welcome to the New Testament there, right? Because God is saying, this is bigger than you ever dreamed. Because even though the nation Israel failed, he is going to send an individual to do what Israel could not do. And we know he's not the nation of Israel. He's an individual because you see how he says he's going to bring back Israel. But at the same time, he's going to do more than that. He's also going to be a light for the nations. And what happens when Jesus comes onto the scenes seen is that he makes it clear that he's the one who's going to do that. He is going to represent Israel, which is why he identifies with Israel by being baptized, even though he never sinned. 
and why when he is baptized, God speaks from heaven and quotes one of these servant songs. It's like God putting in bold print, if you want to understand Jesus, read these songs. And then he takes Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days so he can succeed where Israel failed. And Jesus basically replays the whole story of Israel there. And then Jesus starts preaching the kingdom of God and explaining how God is going to keep his promises. And, you know, he doesn't only preach. He proves that he can fulfill what God was promising to do through Israel by doing what? Cleansing lepers and providing forgiveness of sins apart from the sacrifices in the temples. And so basically in himself, it's like Jesus is going around doing the book of Leviticus, but better. And then now he chooses individuals to take his message out, apostles. And when he chooses these individuals, he chooses 12 of them to speak and act on his behalf. And that number is very specific, 12. And we know that because this phrase, the 12, becomes like a title for them throughout the rest of Scripture. So this is not a random number, which is why after Judas betrayed Jesus and died and the number was reduced to 11, Peter felt like his first job was to do what? Replace him. And though he had two options, he knew that he could only choose one because he understood there was a God-designed limit to their number. There were supposed to be 12 of them because of what Jesus was doing through the apostles, which was basically saying God is not done with what he promised to do through Israel. It's like Jesus is going around saying, I came to take Israel's responsibilities upon myself, to do what the nation of Israel could not do. And to make that crystal clear, he got baptized and identified with Israel. And he replayed Israel's experience in the wilderness. And as he went out to preach the kingdom, he chose to set apart 12 men to be his apostles, his shaliah, and gave them a very specific mission. They had a unique role to play in salvation history, to go where Jesus didn't, and to say what Jesus said, and to do what Jesus did as his officially authorized representatives making clear that he was fulfilling the Old Testament promise and doing what Israel was called to do. That's an apostle. <laughs> That's what an apostle is. Now, I guess second, the next question is how exactly did you become an apostle like that? Number two, how did you become an apostle? Because you maybe might think given this like significant role that these 12 men played that they became apostles because of something especially significant about them. Because that's how it tends to work for us. How does a, a person become a leader in a lot of places? Either they're like smart or they have a good education or they're connected or they have money or something like that. But you know, when the most important person in the history of the world chose the ones he wanted to represent him in the most important mission in the history of the world, he did not use the same criteria that most everyone would have thought he would. And this is really important. One of my uh, favorite books on the apostles, actually, its name is so appropriate. It's called 12 Ordinary Men. And that's a good name because they, these men were very ordinary. In fact, if you look at these men carefully, you're kind of like, how did they become apostles, really? Like out of the whole world. How did Jesus choose them? Because they had a lot going against them. Like, if you think of Jesus 
as being the king of the world and choosing 12 men to represent him who would eventually be the future leaders of the most important nation in the world, who would you expect them to pick? What would you think they would have on their resume? And yet you look, and most of them were fishermen without any kind of unique training for this. And of course, there's nothing wrong with being a, a fisherman. It isn't a bad job or anything. But we're talking some of the most important leaders on the planet. So what if we would pick up a newspaper tomorrow and we find out the president is, is choosing butchers and trash collectors to be on his cabinet? We might like it, actually. We'd be like, that's actually a lot better than who we've got going on. But at the same time, we would know he's definitely making a statement if he did that in the world as it is. If, if he overlooks all these people in Washington and all these people who graduated from these colleges and universities that people respect, and he chooses people that didn't, he would be making a pretty powerful statement. And Jesus was making a statement as he chose these ordinary men. And it wasn't just their occupation and training either that marked the disciples out as ordinary. You read about these apostles, these 12 specifically in the Gospels, and they don't seem to be very spiritually alert either. It's like John MacArthur writes, they lacked spiritual understanding, which is a big problem for doing spiritual work, obviously. They lacked humility. They were self-consumed, self-centered, self-promoting, proud. They lacked faith. At least four times in the Gospel of Matthew, he calls them, oh, you of little faith. They, they lacked courage. As long as there were miracles all over the place and as long as everything was going great and the crowds were there, it was fine. But as soon as the soldiers came into the garden to arrest Jesus, they were gone. And so if you're looking for a human explanation as to why these men made such an impact, why these men became apostles, you're not going to find one. It's not like Jesus had this little list, check, 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 okay, you measure up, I, I choose you. Actually, if anything, it was, who doesn't have understanding? <laughs> who doesn't have humility? Who doesn't have courage? Check, 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 I choose you which is important for understanding leadership in the local church if we just take a moment. Because, you know, we can put leaders on such pedestals sometimes. And that's nice for a little while for both of us. We think, okay, it's nice to have a leader. We can just maybe get something by having this special man be our leader. And the leader feels like, oh, this is neat to be treated as uh, if I were so special. The problem, of course, is that they're not. <laughs> And sometimes we're so hard on them if we find out they're ordinary. But it's kind of like, what did you expect, really? Because while, of course, you should expect leaders in the church to be godly, you should not be surprised if you get to know them, and in some other ways, they're pretty ordinary. Because we know God uses ordinary men from the beginning of the church, <laughs> God has always been choosing what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak in this world to shame the strong, what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. And that's, listen, not just how he saves people either. That seems to be how he accomplishes his plan. And so while the apostles are important and they play this huge, unique role, if you look at how they became apostles, it's not something special about these 12 men. It's about God in his mercy and in his grace at just the right time in salvation history, picking certain individuals and using them to accomplish a very specific purpose, which, of course, is why Jesus spent the whole night praying, right? It wasn't just some routine. 
he was praying because he knew God was choosing these men. And so he was truly depending on God and asking God to help him identify the men who he wanted to serve as the foundation for the church, which is why Jesus says later they were given to him by God, John 17, 6. And so how did you become an apostle? It wasn't because you had this great resume and it wasn't something you decided for yourself either. You didn't just decide to be an apostle like this, not like you volunteered for the for being an apostle. Apostles like this were chosen by God and then recognized and appointed by Jesus himself to first take his message around Israel while he was alive. And then ultimately, of course, after he died and rose again and ascended to heaven to act as his authorized witnesses, going throughout the world, testifying to his life and ministry and resurrection from the dead, which is why that actually ended up being one of the requirements like one of the qualifications for being an apostle, because there was a time in history where they had to choose a 12th apostle. You remember Acts 1 with Peter and the others, and they had to go to Jesus and find out who he was choosing to replace Judas, the traitor. And when they did look to choose another apostle, they had a set of requirements they were using to kind of narrow down the possible candidates. And we see in Acts 1 that they were only looking at those who were with Jesus from the beginning and who had seen the resurrected Jesus. And this is Acts chapter 1, verse 21. It says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of the resurrection. And so that means, you know, if someone comes to us today and says they're an apostle, and by that they mean apostle like one of the twelve, having this authoritative role, you know, we don't really need to wonder. It can feel intimidating when somebody's like, oh, I'm an apostle. But we don't have to get all intimidated because if you look, first of all, at what an apostle is and what they were going to do in, in Jesus' kingdom, you know there's no more space because there are only 12 tribes of Israel and there's only one group in the Bible outside of Israel, really, and everyone's just lumped in one group called the Gentiles and we already have an apostle to the Gentiles. That's the Apostle Paul. And he had to do a lot of work <laughs> to prove that he was an apostle. Because, again, if you look at the way a person became an apostle, you didn't just choose this for yourself. Read Galatians chapter 1 and watch Paul <laughs> work at proving that he was an apostle. Because there were requirements. Apostles were chosen by God and directly appointed by Jesus himself and trained by Jesus for the purpose of representing him, speaking for him, and being physical eyewitnesses to his resurrection. And because they had such an important job, Jesus made it clear who they were by enabling them to perform verifiable, undeniable, no doubt about it, miracles, which were an authentication of the fact that they were delivering new revelation from God speaking in Jesus's place, which again is why you don't really need to wonder or be that confused if you meet someone who thinks he's an apostle like Peter or James, or if you pick up a book that claims to be new revelation from an apostle. You don't really need to question that, like is it or not? Because there's a way you become an apostle with a capital A. And you know what? That opportunity is over. That opportunity is over, and it's fine. It's not like we're missing something now. Because we, because we don't have living apostles like this with us anymore. Because God's given us what we need. Which becomes a little more clear if you look a little more closely at the role the Bible says the apostles played. Which is question number three. First, what is an apostle? Second, 
How did someone become an apostle? And then third, what did an apostle do? Which I think is where this gets exciting because one, like we were saying, the 12 apostles were an illustration, which again is why Jesus tw chose 12, not six or 10 or even tw 20. And, and, and maybe let me say this again, uh, the same thing, just a little different because it's probably a little bit of a different idea for some of us. But Jesus was a preacher and he even says in Luke, this is why he came. And so what did he come preaching? He came preaching the kingdom of God, which ultimately had to do with what? What was the kingdom of God? What was Jesus' main message? It had to do with God's visible rule on this earth. That's the kingdom of God. So that was the hope for the people of Israel. And as Jesus goes around preaching, uh, he, he's not only talking, he's also demonstrating to people what it's going to be like in that kingdom which basically was this world made perfect, the reversal of the curse, like I keep saying. And so that's why Jesus is healing diseases and casting out demons. It all had a purpose. God promised a kingdom, and Jesus is going around showing people what this kingdom looks like. As Jesus preached and as he did these miracles, it's like a sneak peek, a preview of the future plan that God has in store. And one stage in that plan has to do with the nation of Israel itself. Because there are all these promises in the prophets that God makes specifically to the nation of Israel, where the Messiah is going to return and he's actually going to rule physically over the nations from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And so Jesus is going to rule over the planet that rejected him and do what Adam was supposed to do but couldn't and what the nation of Israel was supposed to do originally but couldn't. And one of the things that God's going to do during that time is restore Israel the nation, and make them what he planned for them to be. And as you know, Israel had 12 tribes originally. And so by choosing these 12 men, as Jesus preaches about the kingdom, it's like he's giving Israel a walking, talking picture of that kingdom, just like with the healings and the casting out of demons. The 12 apostles are a picture that God is really going to restore Israel. And you know, there were only like two and a half tribes around in the days of Jesus. And so these 12 men were a picture. It wasn't always going to be like that. Israel was going to be fully Israel again. And actually, if you look at Matthew 19, you see Matthew chapter 19 that these men were chosen to be the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel in that coming kingdom Jesus was talking about. Listen to this, Matthew 19, uh, verse 20. 23 and, and, and following, he says, Truly I say to you, in that new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, which takes it a step further, because the 12 apostles first were an illustration. And yet as Jesus preached about the kingdom, he could point at the apostles and, as an illustration of what he meant. So, it was kind of like you could imagine a guy listening to the Sermon on the Mount and checking out the apostles around Jesus and counting on his fingers. Uh, there's one, two, three. Oh, wow, there's 12 of them. Now I see what Jesus is talking about. But listen, it doesn't just stop there because they had future work to do. They were chosen for participation in Jesus' kingdom. They were an illustration, and they were chosen for participation, which is why they were always arguing about who was the greatest. Because for them, it was like, who's going to be in charge of what? 
which again is why they had to choose someone to replace Judas after he committed suicide, because Judas had proven he wasn't a follower of Jesus, which meant he wasn't going to participate in that coming kingdom Jesus promised. And so there needed to be another apostle to rule over the 12 tribes when Jesus came back. And that's also why the apostles didn't choose someone to replace James when he died, because they knew he would rise again and be able to enjoy the promise God made. It's not like marriage, which ends when you die. An apostle is an apostle in the resurrection. That's their future role. They're leading the 12 tribes of Israel in Jesus' kingdom. And yet third, we can keep going because they didn't just have this job to do in the future after Jesus comes back. They had a mission while Jesus was alive and then especially after he died. They were an illustration. They were chosen for participation. And third, a big part of their job was proclamation. Mark 3.14 says Jesus appointed 12 apostles to be with him and to send out to preach, which at that point was mostly a matter of just repeating what Jesus told them. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. But after Jesus died, there was a whole lot that people still needed to know to understand how everything fit and what it all meant. Like, for example, they needed to understand not just that Jesus died, but the significance of his death. And so Jesus chose the apostles to be the ones to speak for him. And then he supernaturally gifted them to do it by sending the Holy Spirit to help them remember what he said and to teach them what it meant and to pick up where he left off himself and teach them everything else they needed to know as well. And Jesus makes a promise about this. Maybe you remember John chapter 16. While he was still alive, Jesus says to them, John 16, 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And he's speaking there to the apostles specifically, which is why the early church looked to the apostles' teaching and took it so seriously. It wasn't just because like, they were the ones who were with Jesus from the beginning, but actually because Jesus promised that he would send the Spirit to reveal divine truth to them. And so they were the means by which Jesus was going to deliver his message to the church, which is why in Acts chapter 2, Luke summarizes how the early church functioned. And you know what he says? He says that one of the big things you found in the early church was that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching from the beginning which we, of course, expect now, but is surprising back then because this is right after Jesus ascends. And they're like Jewish believers. And so you would expect Luke to say that they devoted themselves to Moses' teaching. But instead, he says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's like he's putting them in Moses' place, which is huge. This is authoritative revelation. The apostles' role was to be an illustration and to serve God through the ministry of proclamation and I'm saying their proclamation was unique in that, that they were actually instruments of immediate revelation. They were speaking directly for Jesus. I guess you could say that's number four. Their, their proclamation and revelation kind of goes together in a way that's a little different than how it works now. Because what's happening now may seem a little more ordinary to you. And, and what's happening now is that we learn what God has to say by studying what God has revealed in this book. And so it's not immediate revelation. It's not like God speaking to me here and out comes God's words. 
There's, there's something media. We go to this book to learn what God has to say. And as we understand this book, we are hearing God actually speak to us. It's still a miracle, obviously, because God has to, to work in our minds if we're going to benefit from this book. But the thing is, it looks kind of ordinary as we're just studying the Bible together. And maybe sometimes, especially with preachers like me, it can feel kind of ordinary. But the apostles were a little different in that God immediately and directly without anything in the middle revealed certain things to them. They were taught by God. And we have the most essential and important things that God revealed to them here in his word. The, the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 3, talking about his own apostleship. He says, it's a stewardship of God's grace given to me for you. How this mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, which is like this huge, huge privilege, hearing from Jesus through the apostles. And yet, of course, if we look at some of what they were saying, it clearly would have also been a little shocking, like Paul says, it would have felt new. A kind of mystery being revealed even, like the fact that the whole sacrificial system, which they had practiced for thousands and thousands of years, and their whole calendar and everything in their life revolved around, was now fulfilled in Jesus. Or the fact that Jesus himself is God. These were quite astounding, amazing statements, which is why Jesus enabled them to do things that proved they were speaking for him and that their word could be trusted. And, you know, that's also why Jesus predicted that they would speak in his place while he was still alive, which I guess is something you need to understand about God because God's kind when it comes to new revelation. He doesn't just give new revelation in the scripture uh, like you have with these apostles. You know what God does? You look at the Bible he doesn't just send new revelation. He prepares people for that revelation. And so if you go all the way back to Moses, before he writes the Pentateuch, the first five books for Israel, God proves he's a prophet by enabling him to do signs and wonders. And then as he's finishing, you know what Moses says? He says, there's going to be more prophets coming. Get ready for that. It's like Moses is saying, get ready for these prophets. You need more. And when those prophets came, you know what they did? They prophesied that there would be greater revelation coming. And so it's like they were getting us to expect more revelation. And then when John the Baptist comes, he bears witness to the Spirit resting on Jesus and gets us ready. Listen to him. And then when Jesus is about to leave, he prophesies that he's going to give more revelation to the apostles, which is one reason why we're not looking for more new revelation from God right now, because the apostles never told us to expect it. They were the ones who were authorized by Jesus to speak on his behalf. And they are the ones God used to deliver his message to us. The apostles and the ones they authorized to speak for them, which we have in the scriptures now, which serves as kind of a foundation for the church, which is the fifth component to the apostles' role, actually. They were an illustration and they were chosen for participation in the coming kingdom of God, given the responsibility of proclamation, which we take so seriously because they enjoyed the privilege of receiving direct revelation from God, which they wrote down or authorized others to write down, which serves now for us as a church as our foundation. As John Stott writes, the church is built on the New Testament scriptures. They are the church's 
foundation documents. And you could see that in Ephesians 2, as Clifton read it earlier, actually, which is why, though we're, we're looking to the apostles to understand church leadership and, and not just coming to this with ideas on our own or just like reading lots of leadership books, because we know that they were given an authoritative role by Jesus to speak for him. That was their office. They were the ones in charge of the churches in those early days in the New Testament, and they were the ones who organized the churches the way Jesus wanted them to. And after they died, you know, who took over that responsibility for them? Who has that kind of authority now? And this is important because if the apostles aren't around anymore, the way we're, we're saying, how do we benefit from what God did through them? It's their word. It's this book. Wayne Grudem, who's this theologian, he's written this really big book we use as a church on theology sometimes. He, he writes, the writings of the apostles, that is the New Testament scriptures that were written or authorized by the apostles, have replaced living apostles in the church. And so in other words, the apostles didn't appoint successor apostles to fill in for them when they were gone. Instead, they pointed back to the word. Like, for example, Peter, when he's leaving, he knows he's about to die. He writes to the churches in Asia Minor. He doesn't send them a replacement apostle to lead them, but instead he writes them a letter, and he says that he did so, 2 Peter chapter 2, so that they, after his departure, could recall what he had said. It's like Peter saying, come back to the word when you have questions. And then Paul, as well, when he's leaving the Ephesian elders, he tells them, going to be bad. There are going to be false teachers that come, like fierce wolves. But even though he knows that, he doesn't send new apostles to protect them, but instead he charges the elders to look out for the church, and he tells them to look to scripture. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified, which I'm kind of emphasizing because I've literally known people who think, oh man, we have to have apostles. Like, if we don't have these apostles physically present with us, we don't have anything. But we do. We really do have something because we have their word. Jesus loves you. He loves us. And after he, as he was going to heaven, after he rose from the dead, he didn't just leave us on our own. He gave people to the church as a gift. And one of those groups of people were the apostles. And even though we don't have them physically with us anymore, we're at a different point in salvation history. That's okay because we're still benefiting from their ministry because we have the most important essential elements of what they said here in the Bible, and that's our authority as a church. This is how God speaks to us and exercises his rule over us, and to help us understand and apply that book to our lives, Jesus is still giving us shepherds and teachers who are different than apostles, and who have a different kind of authority as well, because they aren't the authority in and of themselves. But their job is to point back to the authoritative word, the apostles' teaching, which is big. You know, this is not something small. Remember, when I was interacting more with people who really wanted apostle like, apostles like Peter and James right now, I sometimes wondered, why are they wanting that so badly? And I think sometimes it's because it feels like it would be more exciting if we had these kinds of apostles right now. And yet I think we need to be careful that we don't take for granted how good God's been to us in the way that he served us through the apostles that he's given us. We shouldn't be upset about our timing in the story 
Because even though they aren't here right now, we are here today, thousands of years later, talking about Jesus. And we can have confidence about what Jesus has to say to us because God chose these very ordinary men and then he stuck with them, even though they failed him time and time again. And then he picked them up and transformed them and empowered them through the Holy Spirit to do what no one would have thought they could have done, and that is take his word to the ends of the earth with most of them dying excruciating deaths, being stoned to death, killed with a sword, crucified upside down, beheaded, all that we may have the gospel and that we may have this word, all that we may be the church, his church. And so instead of getting distracted or being disappointed that we don't have what we wish we had or feeling like we need something more, you know what we need to do? We need to value what we do have and not be looking for more, but just going back to what these apostles said and making sure we treat it as Jesus's authoritative word. This is how Jesus speaks to us. And we want to be praying that God would enable us to build our lives and our church on it, to build even our understanding of church leadership on it so that we can faithfully play our role in his great plan, the role he's given us the way the apostles did theirs, even all the way down to the way we think about church leadership. Because while we don't have apostles now, that's not an office in the church. We're not going to be, like, picking apostles. The offices we do have, which we'll talk about in the weeks to come, are not supposed to be based primarily on our ideas or our desires or what makes sense to us or how we think it should work, but instead on Jesus and what Jesus through the apostles has taught us. Let's pray. Lord, there's a, a, you're speaking. <laughs> and you, you spoke back then through ordinary men. Peter was a fisherman, and, and uh, even in Acts, they looked at him and said, this uneducated guy is talking like this? Lord, you've chosen uh, to speak through ordinary men, and now we have this book where we have their words. And sometimes, Lord, we treat it like it's something so small, but we know it's not. It's not. You have been so good to us. You speak to us now through what you said back then, and we just ask, Lord, that you would help us to listen. We're like little children sometimes going away from what you said and making up offices for ourselves and thinking wouldn't it be neat if we did this or wouldn't it be neat if we did that or this makes more sense but lord when we do that we just go in so many wrong directions and make everything so confusing and so we ask that you would help us to be humble enough to just do what you said to not try to improve on what you said but just do and be faithful to what you said when we think about the church and when we think about church leadership. And uh, we pray this in your name. Amen.